Second Corinthians chapter five and verse 20 and 21. We read, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Tonight, I want to speak with regard to this text in two parts. Number one, the exhortation that we be reconciled to God. Secondly, I want to talk about the reconciling work of God in Jesus Christ. The exhortation or the command, boys and girls, that's what exhortation means. Be reconciled to God. That's the command. And then secondly, to look at the reconciling work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first point comes from verse 20 and the second from verse 21. If you look with me again at our text in verse 20, you'll see that the Apostle Paul says that he and other apostles are what he calls ambassadors for Christ. That is, they are representatives of Jesus Christ. They speak for Christ and the apostles speak for Christ uh, as a special representative. I speak for Christ only insofar as what I say is accurate to the word of God. But I contain no inspiration in myself. But that was not the case with the apostles. The apostles were given the Holy Spirit to speak the very word of God and to write the very word of God themselves in their epistles. They had a special authority that distinguished them from other servants of Jesus Christ in the church. It was a peculiar and particular office given for that first generation upon which the church was to be uh, Built. They were the foundation with Christ being the cornerstone, we are told. We see that in Acts chapter one, verse 21 and 22, Luke records the following words for us. Listen to this. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us, meaning the apostles, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until that day when he was taken up from us. One of these, that is somebody who had been there from the very beginning, from the baptism of John all the way to the death of Christ. One of these must become a witness with us, meaning the other apostles of his resurrection. Remember, Judas has died, so they're seeking to replace Judas. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who also was called Justice and Matthias. And so these men uh, were put forward and one was chosen to fulfill to fill the place of Judas. Now, while we do not have apostles anymore being only reserved for that first generation, men who were personally eyewitnesses of Jesus, if you wanted to be apostle. And this is somewhat significant. There are denominations out there. It's just so you know that do believe that there is an ongoing apostolic office. There, there are some churches that teach that uh, there are apostles even for today. But you'll note here from this quote that I gave you in Acts 1, one of the qualifications that they set forth as they were replacing Judas was what? That the person had to be there from the beginning, from the John the Baptist, and had been eyewitness even to the death of, of Jesus. 
Now, remember, there were disciples who followed the people of God beyond the twelve. Remember, there was the sending out of the 72, for example. So it's, it's very likely that Matthias was among the 72 who were sent out. Anyway, all that to say, that was one of the qualifications for being an apostle. You had to be an eyewitness. Well, you can't be an eyewitness in the 21st century of something that happened back in the first century. Uh, that, but yet that would be one of the qualifications for being in office. So I'm making that case just to say that that was a temporary office with extraordinary gifts for the purpose of laying the foundation of the New Covenant Church until the time of the canon be closed. And with the death, I believe, of John uh, at Patmos, um, there has been no other apostle since. Now, there are uh, ministers, <clears throat> ruling elders, along with deacons. Uh, we see from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2. And these have the rule of the church under the headship of Jesus Christ. They don't have the authority to do anything beyond the Bible or short of the Bible. And the deacons are in office in order to serve the material needs of God's people. But here the apostle Paul is appealing to the Corinthian church as an apostle slash elder. He is um, appealing particularly to those within the church who are tempted to defect to false teachers. And so Paul exhorts them or commands them to be reconciled to God. That is, to follow false teachers would be to depart from the living God. We see this also in Galatians chapter 1, where the apostle says to the Galatians, Who has bewitched you? You are not just departing from me, you're departing from God. And so Paul makes it clear that to follow another gospel is to depart from the living God. This is why we have to be careful of what we believe and, and as well as what we uh, do with our lives. Now, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul would evangelize and would call to repentance and for reconciliation those within the visible church at Corinth, which seems to demonstrate that Paul either viewed some within the visible church of either the need to be reconciled to God through true conversion, or at least to be reconciled in the sense that they had backslidden, even if they remained in Christ. We're not certain which of the two or both that it is, but Paul here is commanding this. Remember, this context is that Paul's writing to a church here. This is not Paul standing, say, in the Areopagus and preaching to Gentile Athenians. This is Paul writing to a people a visible body of Christ. And yet he is saying, be reconciled to Christ, be reconciled to God. And I think by way of application, it's safe to say and it's appropriate for us as ministers of the gospel today uh, to urge people to repentance and faith in the visible church, not to presuppose or presume everyone in the congregation is in a spiritually safe condition. And so I, in the name of Jesus Christ tonight, urge you to be reconciled to God to whatever degree you need reconciliation. Whether it is in a small matter or whether it is in a very serious and large matter. This is a relevant message for the church today, even for us here at Covenant. 
All of us tonight ought to make certain that we are in a reconciled condition with God today. And so as we prepare for the Lord's table tonight, I want to ask you about your spiritual condition. Before you take of the bread and before you drink of the cup, are you in a spiritual state that is reconciled to God? What a contradiction if we take the very sign and seal of Jesus's death and claim these elements as our own, if it not truly be the case. In fact, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere what a danger that is, because the table of the Lord is not just a means of grace, but it is a table of judgment to those who do not rightly discern the body of our Lord. And so we ought to be reconciled to God. How do we do so? Number one, make certain that you are truly converted and are truly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Better to examine your life and be certain that you are in Jesus Christ than to assume and never examine. I remember an old illustration I think I got from Al Martin many, many, many years ago. And Al Martin said, it's like going to the bank and you give the bank some money and they say, uh, you know, Mr. Miller, uh, we're concerned about this hundred dollar bill that you've given us to deposit in the bank. Do you mind if we examine it? And you say, well, no, go ahead. And they examine it and they said, nope, this is this is good and legal tender. It's not a counterfeit. Well, then you have more assurance that that what you have is genuine than if it's not examined at all. And so examination, self-examination is not to send us down some kind of introspective rabbit hole from which we never return, but it is to take serious assessment of our own spiritual well-being and condition. And if there are deficiencies in our uh, relationship with the Lord, that we mend those deficiencies before the Lord. That we make certain we are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says we must abide in Christ. And if we are to abide in Christ, we have to abide in his word. And we know that we abide in him if we bear fruit for him. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, John the Baptist says, it's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's not worth anything. You don't plant a fruit tree that doesn't bear fruit. Better to have a bonfire out in the backyard with that tree than to have it just sit there taking up space and soil and fertilizer bearing nothing. But that's what unbelievers do, is they are just wood for future judgment. Make certain you are bearing fruit for Christ. Examine the fruit of your life. Examine the, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Look for deficiencies in your life and seek to amend <clears throat> excuse me, your ways. <clears throat> also, we should seek assurance from the Spirit that we are children of God. <clears throat> excuse me. We seek assurance that we are children of God by availing <clears throat> ourselves to the means of grace, giving ourselves to secret prayer. If you've drifted from God because of an absence of prayer, which is often where apostasy does start. Jonathan Edwards uh, believed that apostasy always started in one's own prayer closet. Apostasy always begins in, in neglecting secret and private prayer. That, that you catch yourself if you've drifted in that area and to give yourself to secret prayer. 
Also, examine your life in the Bible and seek to gain a lively sense of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. You know, children, this is important for you at a very young age. What do I mean by using that old Puritan phrase, get a lively sense of Christ? It sounds so archaic, doesn't it? Get a lively sense of Christ. But what it means is make certain that you don't just have a head knowledge of Jesus Christ. Make certain that what you are learning of Christ in the Bibles is affecting and warming your life and your heart. Make certain that that relationship has some warmth to it, some tenderness to it, some joy to it. Um, you don't want a you don't want a metallic faith. There's no such thing as having a metallic faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to have something that's vibrant, something that's real, something that is grounded in love, the love of God shed abroad in our heart and love to Christ. And if our faith is becoming metallic and joyless, well, then you need to get a closer relationship with Jesus. You need to stop drifting and be reconciled to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, you need to labor to get a warm heart and you need to ask the Lord for a warm heart. We don't want adults or children simply to tell us the facts about the gospel. We don't want you children to come by for a communicant interview and just know the truth, know the facts. But we want you to believe them with all your heart and soul and mind and strength as God gives you grace. This means you need Matthew 6.33. What is Matthew 6.33? It is that you make salvation your chief business. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Make it your priority to have a relationship with God. And to obey God with evangelical obedience. And everything else will fall into its proper place and perspective. It also means to be reconciled to Christ. That you confess sin and repent of all known particular sins. Here again, self-examination and meditation are very helpful. What, how, do I, how do I do this? Well, I think. I look at my life. And I think about where I fell short. In recent days, look at the faults in my life, the deficiencies, the misuse of time. Maybe maybe it's I haven't been working as hard at work as I should have been. Maybe it's I've been short with my wife or I was irritable. I was uh, not very loving in the way I spoke. I spoke with a harsh tone in my voice towards somebody else. Maybe maybe it's some other kind of deficiency. Examine yourself where you have an uneasy conscience. God often doesn't leave us in the dark as to what those sins and faults are. You know them because God keeps putting his finger on them in your life. And maybe maybe God has given you an uneasy conscience about a particular frame in your own heart or your spirit. Or maybe it's negligence with regard to known duties to God or known duties to your neighbors Maybe there's somebody you've been neglecting, a person. Maybe you haven't been honoring your parents by calling them. Maybe you have been neglecting a neighbor that is in need. And you keep saying, I'll get to them later. I'll get to them later. I'll get to them later. I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. And God keeps putting them on your mind and you keep pushing them off. 
remember Matthew 7, that Matthew uh, tells us, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, there are many who call Jesus Lord, Lord. That's one of the scary verses in the New Testament, isn't it? That somebody not only calls Jesus Lord, but Lord, Lord. There's a sense of intimacy there um, with the repetition. There's there's an emphasis there. It's not just Lord, but it is Lord, Lord. And yet, what does Jesus say? Despite the profession, they're unknown by him. What a, what a tragedy for us. If we should on the last day not be known of Jesus, that's one of my prayers. Lord, know me, search me and know me. Lord, I, I don't want to be among those who say, Lord, Lord, but you don't know who I am. I want you to know me, Lord. I, I, I want to know you. I want you to know me. I want you to uh, recognize me on the day of judgment. I want to be on your right hand, not on your left. I want to be with the sheep and not with the goats. I want to be with the good fish. I want to be with the wheat, not the tares. Make certain that Jesus really knows you as a friend and somebody who keeps his commandments. I think the distinguishing mark of those who said, Lord, Lord, but they were unknown by Jesus was he said, depart from me, ye practitioners of wickedness or lawlessness. And there's the key. It was it was disobedience. And we live in a very antinomian age in American evangelicalism where people think they're safe because they say, Lord, Lord, but they they are not walking in the law of God. I mean, most pastors are afraid to use that sentence that I just said, walking in the law of God, walking in the moral will of God, because they're afraid that that is some kind of legalism. And it is not. It's faith in Jesus. If you have genuine faith in Jesus, you want to do what Jesus says to do. You want to walk in the commandments of the Lord. The commandments of the Lord are are your delight. I'm not talking about the ceremonial laws. We, I'm, talking about the, I'm talking about the moral will of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And that's not legalism. That's called evangelical obedience. That's a distinguishing mark of faith. And, and we have a lot of people, especially here in the South, that think that that's not necessary. Now, I will grant that it is we are, the instrument of justification is faith alone, apart from the works of the law. But a justified man, a justified woman, is somebody who has evangelical obedience to the moral will of God for their life. And if it is absent, if the lordship of Jesus is absent from somebody's life, you cannot have him as a savior. This, the, 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 the lordship of Jesus goes with the saviorship of Jesus. So we must be reconciled to God if there, if there is some divergence between our profession of Christ and our possession of Christ. Our profession of Christ and our evangelical obedience to Jesus Christ. It also, we must be wary of not confusing the enjoyment of hearing sermons with truly being reconciled to God. Let me say that again. Do not confuse the enjoyment of hearing sermons with being truly reconciled to God. You know who used to enjoy preaching? 
Herod. The Bible tells us that Herod liked, thought it was interesting to hear John the Baptist preach. And yet Herod would not repent of his adultery with Herodias, his brother's wife. And he added unto that sin the murder of John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6, verse 20. And when he, Herod, heard him, John the Baptist, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod enjoyed the preaching of John, but did not repent nor seek true reconciliation with God. Friends, sermons are completely wasted on you if you do not go to Jesus Christ with them. Preaching is to lead you to Christ. Listen to this was not anything new either. Ezekiel chapter 33. Listen to what Ezekiel said in verse 32. Behold, you are to them. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song. Something they like to hear on the radio. You you're preaching Ezekiel to them is like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument for they hear your words. But they do not practice them. Boy, they love to hear Ezekiel preach. They'll fill the stadium to listen to that man preach. But they won't obey the word of God. Ezekiel is like a rock star. Like a sensual, beautiful singer. And, and they love to hear. The natural man enjoys the, the, uh, the preaching, the power that is felt in that preaching. But it doesn't move them. Doesn't change them. Doesn't lead them to Christ. Paul is saying here in verse 20, we beg. Notice the earnestness there. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Can I say that? We beg you, I beg you, your pastor begs you, be reconciled to God. If you are not reconciled to God tonight, be reconciled with him tonight. You know, what does that suggest? It suggests a God who's ready to receive you, doesn't it? If we have an authoritative command from the Apostle Paul, be ye reconciled unto God. It means we have a God who is standing there with open arms waiting for you to come to him. He is not going to uh, be indifferent. He is not going to stiff arm you. He is like the father scanning the horizon, looking for the prodigal. And when he sees the prodigal, he doesn't just stand there and say, well, he that boy better come here to me. He runs to his son, doesn't he? It's a picture of the father. The father is earnest in his desire to be reconciled with sinners. He is friendly to sinners, say the Puritans. He he loves sinners and wants to go to them, but he wants sinners to come to him as well. Be ye reconciled. Are you reconciled to God tonight? I urge you in Jesus' name tonight here at Covenant Church that you be reconciled to Jesus Christ and to the Father.
Well, let's move to the reconciling work of Christ in verse 21. Verse 21. Here is the basis upon which God is reconciled to sinners. God cannot just let bygones be bygones, can he? And still be just and holy. God cannot just wink at the past as though it was no big deal and be reconciled. He wants to be reconciled, but that reconciliation has a price. And the cost of reconciliation is in the work of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 21. He made him, that is, the Father made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. The Father made him, who knew no sin, that's not to say that Jesus had no knowledge of sin, of course, but that Jesus experientially never knew sin in and of himself because he never sinned himself. He was sinless. He was impeccable. There's that SAT word again, boys and girls. He was impeccable, without fault, without blemish, without stain. And yet he became the very embodiment of sin. Now, how is that possible? That him who is righteous should be sin. Well, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus, by nature, by way of his uh, union uh, with his deity and his humanity, coming together in Christ, he was holy, blameless and undefiled. Very God of very God, though he was truly a man. That man was completely sanctified, his human nature. He was in the words of John 1, 1, he was the, uh, the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So he was very God of very God, as we've been confessing in the Nicene Creed. John 1, 9, there was true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. We know that he was holy, 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 Isaiah 6. We know that he had the power to forgive sins when he told the man being lowered down from the roof, son, your sins are forgiven. He had the power to, to uh, receive worship from people. He fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies attributed to Jehovah. Even God the Father declared twice from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so he is a sinless savior, a perfect man, righteous, a new Adam. Not just a mere son of Adam like the rest of us conceived by ordinary propagation. And filled with sin and brought forth in iniquity, as David says in Psalm 51. Yet this sinless God man becomes a substitute for us, doesn't he? He substitutes himself for us. And that this substitutionary atonement is the very heart of the gospel. I think there is no gospel without substitutionary atonement. A sinless savior, Jesus Christ, putting himself between God who is angry with us because of our sin and ourselves. He interposes himself between the father who righteously judges sin and us who are sinners. And so Jesus lives as our substitute. That's why the act of obedience is very important that you understand Jesus's life is as important as Jesus's death. The life of Christ is as important as his death because he must live as a perfect man, bringing about that righteousness that we have failed to bring about. His obedience is your righteousness. 
And so then having lived, having lived a righteous life, he substitutes himself not only in life, but then in death and substitutes himself on the cross. And it is at the cross that we have this transfer of sin to Christ. That is, he who is without sin, who knew no sin, becomes the embodiment of sin. The sin of all of God's elect are placed on Jesus Christ. All the sin, all the guilt, all the shame is transferred or what we say theologically imputed to Jesus. Now, this was foreshadowed in the laws we'll be seeing in Leviticus here, I hope, in the next few weeks. That when the priest or the worshiper would lay his hands on the, on the head in the Hebrew, it's actually not just touching the head, but leaning into the head of an innocent animal who would be offered at the altar in their place, in their stead. And this was to recognize what sin deserved, the wrath and curse of God, that sin brings about death. And so there is this substitution of the of the animal, the bullock or the lamb or the goat. In some cases, if you were poor of the of the dove uh, in place of the sinner. Isaiah chapter 53 takes up this imagery of substitutionary atonement uh, where Jesus Christ is uh, spoken of and prophesied as the lamb who takes our place. And that he uh, and, and that that's why John the Baptist's words, behold, the lamb of God are so pregnant with meaning. When he points to Jesus, Jesus is the lamb for signified in the law of God, prophesied by Isaiah and now on the scene in the days of John the Baptist. Let me close by saying this. This means that we have a secure salvation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Notice that the last part of the sentence so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we might be declared by God righteous. First of all, this, I think, needs to be understood as imputed righteousness. But it may have in view also, ultimately, our glorification, just as Paul writes in Romans eight twenty nine and 30 when he outlines the golden chain of salvation that uh, that we, we go from being elect in eternity past to being glorified in eternity future. And in between there is our faith and justification in Christ, that one who believes on Jesus Christ immediately upon believing is counted as righteous in the sake of, in the sight of God for the sake of Christ. And that that imputed righteousness will lead by grace through sanctification, inherent righteousness that more and more we bring forth the obedience that God's law commands of us. Philippians chapter three, verse nine says this, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Remember, the Apostle Paul, before he came to Christ, you remember what his problem was, boys and girls? His problem was he thought he had a righteousness by way of his own works. He believed that by being born an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, you know, uh, Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law. He was a Pharisee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
that that was the way he gained acceptance with God. And yet then once he meets Christ, he realizes that which he was counting on as righteousness really was rubbish. It's actually a little stronger in the Greek. Scubala is a little bit more than rubbish. <laughs> and uh, he, he, it was dung. And, and, and he, he recognized that what he was formally counting on for acceptance with God was nothing but fertilizer in the sight of God. And it, it, it counted not only as nothing, but it was demerit in the sight of God. And that righteousness comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. Our security rests entirely upon God and not of ourselves. And this is a very liberating message for us. Righteousness comes from God and it comes on the basis of faith. Righteousness is not derived by the works of the law, but in him who has faith. And Paul gives us Abraham, doesn't he? As an example, was Abraham justified? While circumcised or while uncircumcised? And the answer is, while uncircumcised, Abraham was justified. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness prior to his obedience. It was faith in the promise of God. And so it is tonight for us. It is faith in the promise of the son that everyone who believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 3.26 says, therefore, God is the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. How can you be righteous tonight? How can you be reconciled to God? By looking to Jesus Christ alone. Jesus and his substitutionary work for you by taking your sin and imputing it to himself and then imputing to the believer his righteousness. (coughs) You have acceptance with God. God looks upon you, and I say this with reverence, as though you were Jesus. As though you were as righteous as Jesus himself. Because your righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. It's an alien righteousness. It's a forensic righteousness. It's not an inherent righteousness. It's not the righteousness of John or Bob or Sue. It's the righteousness of Christ. Which gains us acceptance with God. And therefore it is a secure righteousness. It's a righteousness that cannot be shaken. Romans 3 verse 28. Paul says. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith. Apart from the works of the law. We look to Christ. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end of our righteousness. He's the beginning and the end of our salvation. We look to him and I've said this to you in the past, I think several times that faith is often so much not defined by the Bible, but it is demonstrated time and time again. It is the it is the man with the withered arm stretching it forth upon the command of Jesus. It is the Syrophoenician woman desperately pleading with Christ to heal her demonically possessed child. It is the woman with the bleeding problem who just reaches out and says, if I can only touch even just the hem of Jesus's garment, I will be saved. I'll be healed. It's the Roman centurion who says, I'm not worthy, Jesus, to have you in my house. You just say the word and I'll believe that my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like that. That is what we need. We need but only believe and look to Jesus Christ. And when we have Jesus Christ, we have everything. Amen. Lord.